0: Okay, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Tom O'Neill, and he's just published a fantastic book. The title of the book is Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. It was published very recently, June 25th, 2019. And uh, it's a very detailed reinvestigation into the events that are going to have their 50th year anniversary here on August 8th, the Charles Manson Tate LaBianca LaBianca Murders, and uh, he's going to tell a very interesting uh, story. He's been researching this story for two decades, and it's just a really fantastic book. So, Tom, are you there?
1: I am here. Hi, William.
0: Hi. Thanks so much for agreeing to the interview. Great book, really fantastic read. Uh, for the audience who doesn't know your name, can you talk a little bit about your background, how you became interested in journalism, and how you started your inquiry into the Charles Manson murders? Okay,
1: I was a frustrated playwright, screenwriter in New York City, actually driving a horse and carriage in Central Park in the 80s after graduating from NYU Film school. And uh, there was a lot of downtime on the horse, so I'd read newspapers and magazines and never taken a journalism career my, or course in my life, but I just thought this sounds fun and easy. Why well, don't I write something up about the carriages and submit it? And I sent a first-person kind of humorous piece about uh, the carriages to New York magazine, and first thing I, I sent in, they published, and the next thing I knew... Um, I started getting published uh, as a freelance person for a few years, enough to leave the carriages. Um, then I got ended up somehow segueing into entertainment reporting. And just so you know, there's another Tom O'Neill out there okay. who writes a lot about award shows and entertainment, and he's not me. Uh, sometimes he spells his name, his last name, with two L's. Sometimes with one. Mine has two L's and. Kind of difficult because when I was going around to interview, you know, hardened cops and criminals and whatever, they google me and come up with this guy's stories about Julia Roberts' dress on a red carpet or something, and it didn't kind of reconcile with what I was asking them. But uh, okay. once I started doing that, I, I enjoyed it and got a staff job at a magazine called Us, which was then a monthly and later became a weekly tabloid. Uh, When it was a monthly, I could do 3,500 and 5,000-word pieces. Um, I started profiling actors and actresses and doing on-set stories and eventually got bored with that and did an investigative story about what was then the kind of war between daytime talk show producers for guests. You know, Sally Jesse Raphael, Phil Donahue, Mori Povich, and... That one, uh, got a lot of attention and caused the magazine to actually create a series called Us Investigates. So I then began doing investigative stories, but just about the entertainment industry. And then in about 1998, I think, Us Magazine changed format and went from monthly to weekly, and it became much more tabloidy, no long stories, nothing serious. So I left and, uh... So did most of the people at the magazine and a whole bunch of them ended up at Premiere Magazine, which was a movie magazine, monthly. And once they settled in there, the people at the top of the masthead contacted me and asked me to do what was then going to be a 30th anniversary piece on uh, men's murders. So that was 99. And I had no interest in the case, no interest in Helter Skelter, had never read it and told my the editor calling me who I'd worked with before at the other magazine quite a bit that I wasn't interested and she says you need the job I know she, she was a good friend and I actually did need the money and I needed to get a foothold in premiere with the rest of them so I said yeah I go well you know what's the angle what the, hasn't been written about this guy and you know these horrible crimes and she basically said, "You'll find an angle. Just, you know, start with how did it impact Hollywood? How did they change the culture of, you know, Los Angeles?" Which I knew I'd never be happy with. So that's kind of a, a summary of how I began looking deeper and started reporting the story. And once I started seeing cracks in what was the official narrative in Helter Skelter that had been written by the prosecutor Vince Pulizzi. Uh, everything kind of unraveled, and I followed leads that took me sometimes to great places and sometimes to blind alleys and dead ends, and uh, one after another,
0: yeah. I was just going to say, you start off the book with an interview with Vincent Bugliosi, and you stated that that's the most uh, popular true crime book ever, so he was able to not only influence the juries, but also the public with his version of events, and uh, I do commend you for going out and really researching so many people that he or were involved in those case, involved in his book and involved in the Manson case. You really traveled around and uh, talked to so many underworld people, many policemen, uh, Bugliosi as well. And, you know, maybe we can just start off by you talking about where your investigated investigation started.
1: Yeah, well, I read his book first. For the first time and it was you know an amazing read I couldn't put it down once I began um, and w- there were I underlined some things in the book where he even admitted that he hadn't quite gotten the answers about and uh, little holes and mysteries that were still kind of remaining and when I called him I had been told it would be difficult to get him to, to talk because at that point he had done you know obviously probably forty five years of interviews for TV, radio, print about this case. And he was really trying to get some distance from it because he wanted to be taken seriously as an author of he was getting into more political nonfiction, had written about a, a case for indicting George Bush for murder, an article about the Supreme Court justices and Paula Jones. But for whatever reason, he said yes to my request. And I went to see him in April of 99, the month after I got the assignment, and spent six hours with him at his house. And it was very gracious. We went out to lunch. He showed me, took me on a tour of some of the locations where important stuff connected to the crime. had happened, went back to his house and kept talking. And towards the end of it all, I realized even though I have a fantastic access to, you know, one of the main people in the story, he wasn't telling me anything new. It was just like he was rehashing the book and everything he'd ever said before in interview. So I did what we call the Hail Mary pass in journalism where I said to him, you know, I thanked him for the interview. And I said, here's the deal this I need something new that's never been reported about this. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can tell me off the record, not for attribution that I could use that would give me a fresh, you know, some fresh information to to investigate and follow through with. And he thought a minute and then he said, turn it off, turn it off, meaning the tape recorder. So I did. And then he told me something that had never been reported before. It had been reported, but only a minimum of it. He had told me the truth of it or his truth at the time. It was pretty shocking and I wasn't allowed to attribute it to him. But uh, later it became the subject of a lawsuit when he threatened to sue me and he wrote about it in different letters to my publisher threatening this lawsuit. And the lawyers at that publishing house that he must understand now that once he's sharing all this information with lawyers and knowing that this will all go into a case file that's open to the public, it's no longer off the record so you can use it. So that little thread that he gave me kind of was the first unraveling of his own narrative. I don't think that's what he intended. Uh, Once I found that out, which meant that he also had to misrepresent some of the information in the book, I found beyond that much more important stuff, um, you know, that raised questions about the entire prosecution, and the motive for the murders, quite a bit of, of stuff.
0: Right. And so after Buliosi, you kind of reached out and you talked to other people who were familiar with Cielo Drive, just to go over that the murders took place August 9th, uh, or August, the night of August 8th, 1969, uh, it happened on Cielo Drive, and then the night after... Was the Tate LaBianca, I mean the LaBianca murders, correct? And I think Gary Hinman was killed three weeks, three days before. About the, two weeks. Two weeks before. Well, about
1: two weeks before.
0: Yeah. Okay, so there was a series of murders and possibly even more murders. And you talk about something that I never heard about, which are the Tex Watson tapes, which we can talk about later. But um, this was uh, August eighth, nineteen sixty nine, and. You had, and it's important to remember when we talk about this book that the Manson family was not arrested for four months after the killings. So there was a maximum amount of fear and terror happening in Los Angeles, and, and the stories were very lurid. But uh, you, I talked to like Terry Melcher, who uh, was close to. Well, he denied he was close, but who was Terry Melcher, and why is he important to the Manson story?
1: Well, historically, he was a son of Doris Day, you know, in the 1950s, the number one female movie actress in the world, a singer-actress, and he was a record producer in and of his own right. He was actually very talented, and he was kind of a boy wonder. Uh, So in his early 20s, he was producing uh, uh, The Birds, uh, Paul Revere and The Raiders, uh, The Mamas and The Papas, and he was very close to The Beach Boys. He lived at the house where eventually Sharon Tate and four other people were murdered on August 8th. Uh, He had moved out uh, prior to the murders, but he had met Manson in 1968 when Manson was living at uh, his friend, Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys' house. And uh, in Melcher's official version, he met him briefly at Wilson's house uh, when Wilson drove him home that day, Melcher, Manson was in the car, saw where he lived, and then Melcher saw him the following year in May of 1969, twice at the Spawn Ranch, when he went out to audition the band, or excuse me, Mel- Manson and his followers, Manson wanted to be a recording star, and he did it more as, as a favor to Dennis Wilson and his friend Greg Jake- Jacobson, Melcher's closest friend, but he wasn't impressed. He was polite, uh, told Manson, gave him some advice, said he probably wasn't right for him, uh, suggested he uh, let another friend of his record him for a different, his own label, uh, Steve Desper. Excuse me, it might not have been Steve Desper, it's another name. Anyway, but that was that in May of 1969. Uh, And then when Manson decided in the official narrative to ignite a race war, he called Helter Skelter, by blaming horrific murders on the Black Panthers, he sent Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie, excuse me, Susan Atkins, and Tex Watson to the former home of Terry Melcher with uh, instructions to horrifically kill whoever they encountered um, to instill fear in Terry Melcher. So Melcher provided the prosecution with a reason for why that house was selected. And it's still a kind of convoluted reason. Re, reason, how If you're going to scare Terry Melcher, how is he even supposed to know this right. unless he's informed that these murders were intended to scare him? What I found after about a year of reporting was that the story about Melcher and Manson's relationship was a lie that Melcher knew Manson much more much better, had a much more extensive relationship with them that included and went beyond the murder period that Meltzer had visited Spawn Ranch and the Barker Ranch to see Manson um, twice in September, late August and September after the murders. So that kind of undermined the whole motive if we couldn't trust the main witness that gave the prosecution the reason for the House being selected. That was one of the first big findings.
0: Right. So there were three meetings between Melcher and Manson between August and their arrest in December, which uh, invalidates right. this narrative. Right. So they, um,
1: excuse me, they were actually they were actually arrested in mid-October in and okay. Parker ran at Barker Ranch, but they weren't charged with the Tate labianca Bianca murders until December 1st.
0: Right. Thank you. That's that's good. And there, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's an important point. They were arrested for. Auto theft or uh, right breaking down cars, so that was an, an important part about Melcher. And you sat down with Melcher and had a very interesting conversation on a rooftop in Santa Monica. Can you relate that to the listeners?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Melcher had only given, I think, two interviews in his entire life since the murders happened. I think both to Rolling, no, one to Rolling Stone and one to his mother's biographer. And he basically stuck to the story. He had testified to it, not only the Taylor Bianca murder trial, but also Tex Watson's trial. He was tried separately. So he told what were essentially lies about the last times he had seen Manson, how, how well he knew him, how many times he'd met him. And I had first been told this alternative version by Rudy Altabelli, who had owned the house where the murders happened and was away. He lived in the guest house. He was away in Europe. He was a, a manager of talent. He was working with an actress named Olivia Hussey at the time, who was Juliet and uh, the Zeffirelli film Romeo and Juliet. And they were in Italy making another film. And Rudy was also a principal witness for the prosecution. And once I gained his trust, and he was another one who had never been interviewed at all, uh, he started telling me the truth about Melcher and the Manson family. Stuff that he had kept to himself for years. And once I had that, I was calling Terry Melcher trying to get an interview with him. And I'd hinted a little bit what I knew. And at one point he called Rudy because they were still friends. And he told Rudy, he wanted to know how I knew all this stuff. And according to Rudy, he said uh, Vince was supposed to take, have taken care of all this. It was never supposed to have come out. Uh, Subsequently, I actually found documents uh, in Vince Bugliosi's own hand of interviews with other prosecution witnesses who described seeing Melcher at the ranch after the murders, both the Spawn and the Parker ranches. Once I had the documents, I let Melcher know that he needed to at least see what I was going to have and what was then going to still be a magazine article. It hadn't become a book project And he decided to let me come over and interview him on the roof of, well, it was a penthouse roof of his building in Santa Monica um, the day before the 4th of July, 2000. And when I arrived there, he was alone on the roof, and he'd obviously drunk a lot already. It was only about 2 or 3 in the afternoon, and we had a pretty freewheeling conversation for about an hour that was all recorded on audio tape in which he denied everything that I put in front of him and then threatened you know, to sue me and throw my briefcase off his roof, and, and then in the same breath offered me the uh, option of writing his official biography with him, his memoirs. And he said that we, he could tell me stories about his mother and the Rat Pack and Elvis that had never been told before, and I could do that if I didn't do this book about him and the Manson family. He was basically trying to bribe me not to do it uh so there's a lot of that in the book that was not an isolated
0: incident right and you were constantly getting threatened with lawsuits and even death threats as well like you should stay away from this uh right, it, right so right. it was uh so melcher was one altobelli was uh, you met him at Musso and frank in uh west hollywood i mean you had some very like uh, los angeles moments there who else who else would you say was an important person you uh, met with to kind of unravel what really happened uh, in regards to the Manson murders?
1: Well, I met with Greg Jacobson. Uh, he was the third of the trio of Dennis Wilson and, and and Terry Melcher. Jacobson really was the outsider who never joined the family, but was with him so much. I think he said a trial. He estimated he'd been to the spawn Ranch 200 times or something like that. And he was the one who kind of provided the helter skelter motive for the murders that Vince needed. He and another guy named Paul Watkins, who was a family member is now dead, explained uh, what Manson's beliefs allegedly were about the prophecy that he was hearing in the Beatles lyrics about the end of the world and blah, blah, blah. Well, Greg wanted money to be interviewed in in mainstream serious journalism. You can't pay an interview subject. Um, can take them out to a meal, and that's all I could do. And I wore him down eventually. And he did agree to go, you know, meet with me if I took him out to a meal. Uh, and he never told me anything that contradicted the narrative. But what he did tell me was some parts of the narrative had probably been made up. For instance, uh, a famous anecdote is that Manson had stolen Terry Melcher's telescope from the beach house in malibu just before the murders mm-hmm. and let greg know that so greg could tell terry that they knew where he lived and he wasn't safe in malibu and when i asked greg, greg testified about this on the stand when i asked greg about the telescope story he said oh i don't think that was ever true and i said well that would have meant that you perjured yourself he goes well you know we kind of said what we were told to say. So I got a lot of instances of that from him and other people, but he was way too smart to absolutely contradict or tell me any more. But that was my goal in the very beginning to talk to people who had actually testified on the stand, who had never given an interview before and see if their stories held up, you know, 30 years later and see what I could find out that had never, you know, been questions that had never been put to them before. And through luck or whatever, I started getting people to talk to me. I, you know, it wasn't easy, and it took sometimes a few years or longer.
0: Right, and uh, they those three guys—Wilson, Melcher, and Jacobson—they were known as the Golden Penetrators. They right. were involved with the family, and there was—I uh, think you said there was some decent evidence that Melcher was, uh, you know, having relations with one of the female family members. That was really that would. Show that he wasn't really that uh, distant from the family. Right, exactly. Yeah. Ruth,
1: Ruth Ann Morehouse, who was the youngest female family member, well, her and Diane Lake were both about 14 or 15. And Melcher, actually, Melcher and Jacobson both became obsessed with Ruth Ann. And Terry tried to move her into the house to work as his quote unquote maid. And Candace Berg and his girlfriend at the time, wouldn't allow it. And all this stuff is in police files and information. And Jacobson even told me it. And uh, it all contradicts Terry's testimony on the stand and Terry's official story. And so, again, Vince Bugliosi was aware of all this prior to the trial, and he allowed Terry to go up on the stand and tell a story that he knew was false in a capital murder case, which... Um, if Vince had ever been shown to have suborned perjury, as it's called in a capital murder case, he would have been subjected to the same sentence that the people convicted got. So in other words, the Manson family all got death sentences. If Vince had been convicted of suborning testimony in that trial, he also would have gotten a death sentence for that.
0: Yeah, and you had talked to some of the uh, his fellow prosecutors and showed them evidence. I mean, you had stuff from these files, and we can talk about you going through police files as well, but uh, there were some very damning things about Buliosi in those files that he, from his own handwriting too, right?
1: From his own notes, from yeah. his own notes. And I finally took that to, see, to show to Stephen Kay, who was his co-prosecutor in the tate Lab bianca murder trial. And Stephen Kay was significantly Well, actually, he wasn't that much younger than Vince at the time. He was only like 27, and Vince was about 34. But after the tate Lab bianca conviction, he co-prosecutor Tex Watson was then, and then he was lead prosecutor in some of the other trials against Bruce Davis, Steve Grogan, etc. And then after that for 30 years, he did every single parole hearing of a Manson family member. He retired, I think it was in the early 2000s, and he said he was 60 and 0, meaning he had appeared 60 times against uh, Manson family members who were trying to get parole, and he had never lost. They'd all been uh, overturned their, their parole request. Right. When I met with him and I had told him in advance that I was going to show him evidence that Melcher had a relationship, that post-dated the murders with the family, and he said to me, I'd talked to him quite a bit at that point, you're never going to be able to show me anything to get me to believe that, Tom. There's absolutely nothing, I know this case, better than anyone probably even Vince at this point. Uh, but sure enough, after about two hours, He kind of slumped in his chair at our meeting, and he had looked at all the documents, and he said, I don't know what to think anymore. I thought I knew everything about this case, and now I don't know what to believe. He said, Vince, this is his handwriting. He changed all this. I don't know why he would cover this up. Uh, I really don't know what to think anymore. So uh, I heard that from quite a few people who were in law enforcement and in the DA's office when I confronted them with this stuff.
0: And uh, you went through some of not only uh, Buliosi's material, but also that was in the police files, right? So you went in and really kind of looked through some of these files that were that nobody else had really looked through before, correct?
1: Well, that was, yeah, I mean, that was really what made the book become, a, I mean, made it was no longer a magazine story. I knew that even though I was hearing all this in in interviews with people, that their their memories were at that point thirty or more years old. So I needed to find some substantiation in contemporaneous paperwork, you know, police reports, DA's reports. So I really started making uh, an effort to get into the DA's files, and that was. The first file, important file I got into after I wore down the head press secretary for the DA, uh, a woman named Sandy Gibbons, who started letting me in, and that's where I found the first important notes. Um, simultaneously, I was working on some retired sheriffs to get, that, get their help to get into the sheriff's archives, and I didn't know it at the time, but when I finally got in, they had sent me to the building uh, on the sheriff's actually training school property in East L.A., to the barracks where they have the Manson files. And I was met by another retired, I shouldn't name him, another retired uh, sheriff's deputy who was working as the security guard at the the barracks. And he was expecting me, he let me in, took me to the filing cabinets, gave me a folding chair, brought over a lamp, went back to his office and he said, if you want to copy anything, just bring it to me first and let me look at it. And then if it's okay, you can go to Kinko's and come back. And I did that for the entire summer, thinking that this was actually approved all the way to the top. It wasn't until later I found out that the only ones that knew were these two or three retired sheriffs. Um, And when Lee Baca, the head sheriff, found out five or six years later, the shit really hit the fan. And um, that's in the book. And then the third file, file belonged to Mike McGann who was a sergeant at the LAPD who was the lead detective in in the Tate aspect of the the murder investigation. He he handled all that. He went to the scene that day. He had the entire file of the Tate and LaBianca LAPD investigation, and it took me six years to wear him down to the point where he finally agreed to let me come to his house and copy everything.
0: Wow. So, yeah, so you had some original documentation and talked... Yeah, the talk to yeah. yeah. and so you also talked to the original um the original uh investigators, right? Gunther and Whiteley. Gunther was known for yeah. the cotton club murders. Can you talk about them?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, I think it was James Elroy or, and or Paul Fitzgerald, who was one of the Manson family defense attorneys who called him the smartest cop. Uh in the history of Sheriff's homicide, he was just a really old school cigar gi- smart chewing, hard drinking, large man who knew how to play suspects. He would cry to them to get a confession. He would he could play good cop, bad cop. He was kind of iconic, and he he and his partner Paul Whiteley handled the Hinman murder investigation, and they were the, famously the two cops who went to the La Bianca excuse me, the Tate autopsies on August 9th or 10th and told the coroner, well, we're trying to get to the coroner, they didn't get past the two LAPD guys, and they told the two LAPD guys that they had an identical murder, same weapons, uh, same blood writing on the walls.
0: I'm sorry, I just lost you there for a sec. Can you repeat that, please? I heard the blood writing on the walls.
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah, they went to... um, the the tate autopsy and they told the two detectives they encountered there that they needed to get to tom nicucci the coroner because they believed that the people who were who had killed their victim gary him and topanga two weeks earlier were responsible for these tate murders because it was the same weapons um same mode of murder uh, same blood writing on the wall with an identical word pig written in blood and those cops said no no we're We'll get back to you. We think this is done by a rival drug dealer, to Wojciech Berkowski. So those two cops walked away from it and never did anything about it, never stopping their quiet investigation and connecting him into the others. Uh, And what I found out was they had a lot more information than had ever been reported before because Gunther ended up telling me, what exactly he knew about the murders that linked them to Tate and Bianca, and you find out if you read the book. I'd rather not say it here because it's okay. real complicated. Sure. Um, why I suspect that the sheriffs and the LAPD could have taken the Manson family in much, much sooner uh, than they did, but they allowed them to remain free for a couple of months when they shouldn't have.
0: Yeah, and that's a big mystery. I think that's a continuing mystery. You, you elucidate through the book is like a lot of people knew you did a lot of interviews with people who said, Yeah, they were the first suspects after August eighth. There was a huge uh, was something that I didn't know about and something I think you said was not emphasized in Helter Skelter was the largest to that time the largest police um seizure right. or whatever happened on August was it eight the sixteenth. So like Six, almost 16, 16. so like a week after the murders, a hundred cops come down on Spawn Ranch. And you, can you tell the rest of that story, please?:
1: Yeah, yeah. well, they have been doing surveillance on Manson and his activities for the prior like six weeks before August sixteenth, including, you know, I found documents in the sheriff's files showing that uh, it was a, a memo generated August eighth, which was the day the murders were committed, and one office one detective wrote to another within the department that Charles Manson was expected back from the Bay Area that afternoon with a large shipment of narcotics, which he intended to sell or distribute um, once he got back to the Spawn Ranch. And he'd be arriving with a new uh, young runaway girl. In fact, Manson had returned from um, the Bay Area the day before with Stephanie Schramm, a new runaway girl that he had picked up up there. So that's how closely they were monitoring them. Then on August 16th, it, they had this raid at dawn that involved, uh, you know, helicopters, RVs, uh, all-terrain vehicles, um, and 102 different agency members. 32 uh, family members, including minors, were rounded up, taken into custody. Manson was found with three stolen credit cards in his pocket. That's not reported in Helster Skelter. Uh, they were held for three days and then released without any charges being filed and. Poliosi devoted, I think, a paragraph and a half to that raid in Helter Skelter, and he said the reason no charges were filed was because the warrant was misdated. Well, I found a copy of the warrant, and it was dated August 13th. The raid was August 16th, but in Los Angeles, actually, I think in all law enforcement, you have like a 10-day window around the date that the warrants issued before or after to... You know, carry out the action. Mm -hmm. I also found Bill Gleason, the the retired sergeant who had written the warrant, and he confirmed that he said that warrant was not invalid. He said, That's pissed me off for however many years. And the police would put that in the book. That's not why the charges were dropped. And then I said, Well, why on earth were they dropped? And he said, You got to find that out. I can't tell you. And I said, You can or you won't. He said, I honestly don't know. So that's a whole other uh, section of the book where I try to find out. Why, if they had all this evidence of, uh, you know, stolen vehicles, firearms, underage girls, narcotics, even credit cards on Manson, who's named as the leader of this drug grant gang in the warrant, and he's also identified as a federal parolee, why no charges were filed and why he wasn't at the very least. Uh, uh, revoked, getting sent back to prison, his parole revoked. These are the big questions, you know. My book raises.
0: Right, it's a it's a huge mystery. And who was Preston Gillery? He was uh, somebody who also worked for the police and kind of went public. He ended up getting his career tarnished. correct?
1: Yeah. Well, he was a sheriff's deputy. He participated in the raid, and uh, after the Manson family was identified as the suspects on December first, sixty nine few days after, uh, he gave a radio interview in which he said that the sheriffs have been, actually a lot of what I just said, mm-hmm. that they've been monitoring the uh, Manson family for quite some time. They knew their comings and goings. And then as soon as it was going to be announced that um, the Manson family were suspects of Tate LaBianca, He said all the files were removed on their surveillance, all their information they had was taken out of the office, and they were ordered not to talk about it. And he suspected that the sheriffs knew prior to the murders that uh, Manson was going to go out and commit some type of assault against Black Panthers or some type of uh, assault that would provoke the Black Panthers. Um, and he told us on the radio, lost his job because of it. And I interviewed him later. He actually passed away a few years ago. Yep. But he corroborated everything he had told the early interviewer in 69 to me when I talked to him.
0: Yeah, so he was willing to go public. I think in 71 he did an interview with Mae Brussel. So he was <laughs> right, one of the uh, early kind of people out there questioning the kind of publicly known narrative. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, So yeah, so that was just another one. And so... Um, what and you read through the Hinman case files as well, too? Is that correct?
1: I did. I did. Yeah.
0: And that so that was another set of files that indicated they were tracking Manson. So it's a different. I mean, you just kept coming over and over these files where they're checking it out. And you mentioned Lee Baca earlier. He was uh, the police chief, police chief in LA. So you had kind of you, you're kind of coming across all these well-known LA figures as you're doing your. Well,
1: Bacher was in the sheriff's department at the time of this, but he wasn't the uh, head sheriff until uh, the 1990s at some point. But when I confronted him about 2007 or eight, you know, he was at the height of his power. And he did not want to hear the questions I was asking him about his department and what they knew. He basically, he didn't throw me out of his office, but he fast walked me out of there and told me I was a nut if I thought I was ever going to get any of this crazy stuff published. Well, he's in prison now, and oh, I'm not. He ended up getting losing his job and being sentenced to prison for all kinds of violations while he was in office.
0: Yeah. So uh, interesting. I was actually I went to uh, the induction of a police officer and he was the head of it. So I kind of knew. Yeah. Knew of him. I, you know, I've seen him or seen him around. But uh, what uh, maybe we can talk about some of the very strange intel stuff that surrounds this case that not a lot of people know about. That wasn't mentioned much in Helter Skelter. And you title a chapter. Who was Reeve Whitson? Who was Reeve Whitson? Right. And why is he important?
1: I wish I could tell you, I still am not really sure who Reed Woodson was, but you'll see in the book that what I was able to learn from his family, but not from, well, the Central Intelligence Agency, was that he, he they all believed, meaning his former wife and his daughter, and everybody that was close to him, that he worked for some arm of the CIA, uh, but like a rogue, even much more secretive branch, and he had before his death in the early 90s he told his attorney and two of his closest friends that he had been involved been involved in an undercover operation to infiltrate the manson family and had posed as a hippie and spent time at the spawn ranch gathering information and he wouldn't tell them exactly who he was doing it for or what the objective was but he did tell them that uh His dying regret was he could have prevented the murders and he didn't. And he said, I was at the crime scene at the Tate house after the murders had been committed, but before the police arrived, which was pretty interesting to me because there is a good case that's been made by Manson himself, who admitted it in a biography of him that he cooperated in, that he had gone back to the crime scene after the murders had been committed to rearrange the scene Uh, And during that period, there were uh, gunshots and shouting and arguments and screaming heard that conflicts with the official timeline of the murders. And Manson in this book didn't say who he went with. He just said he went with someone. He wouldn't disclose who it was. Uh, If Reed was telling the truth, it could have been him. Uh, And later, uh, Manson retracted and said he had nothing to do with the book and hadn't said that. But the problem was, when the book was published, he appeared from prison with the author and several television shows, including NBC's Good Morning America, uh, uh, or whatever it is, the he, NBC Morning Show.
0: But the thing is, is that he said stuff that confirmed what was at the scene, that there were glasses, and that there, yeah, were, there right. were differing analyses of what was at the scene. There was a different story between what the murderer said and what the police exactly. saw. So there, yeah, there, exactly. that discrepancy is real along with four different mm-hmm. narratives by all the killers. But there is a difference between who saw it and who left, the supposed killers, and the, right. the police showed up. So that is really true. So something mm-hmm. ha- did, mm-hmm. seems to have happened between uh, the deaths. How, do you remember how long it was between the time of the murders and when the police
1: uh, yeah. came on the scene? Yeah, the murders, Fugliosi estimates that they were over by 1230 and the killers were gone by 1230. Um and the police came after Winnie Chapman, the maid, discovered the bodies, approximately eight thirty in the morning or a quarter to nine, somewhere in that window. So there were at least four, five, six hours.
0: Right. So a significant amount of time. And they uh right. uh the other the other interesting thing is um there was a book that I had never heard of called Five Down on Cielo Drive, never published that year. Oh, it's can... a
1: good book. Yeah, it's a good book.
0: And that was done by a lieutenant. Oh, oh
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're talking. I thought you were talking about another one. Yeah, Five Down on Cielo Drive is the book written by Colonel Kate Sharon's father, uh, and Robert Heller, Heller, the head of the, the head Mike, Mike McGann's boss of the Lieutenant of the LAPD investigation, and a guy named Frenchy Rodriguez, Roger Rodriguez, who was an FBI agent who was peripherally involved in the investigation. And it was never published, but I got the manuscript.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That's really firsthand mm-hmm. uh, information. So and that's where I learned. Also, I was able to corroborate that at the very least,
1: Reeve Whitson, who was given a, a alias by uh, Colonel Tate, and Colonel Tate confirmed that to me in one of our few phone conversations uh, that Reeve Whitson had inserted himself into the police investigation from the first day. Um, the investigation began. Uh, he actually was with Roman Polanski before the police were uh, at Paramount Studios. When the police arrived to interrogate Roman Polanski, they were met by Reeb and two of Polanski's closest friends. Wow.
0: Yeah. And so even Tate himself is what he was from naval intelligence, is that right? Or Tate's Yeah. That? Yeah.
1: So yeah, military he, intelligence. Military
0: intelligence. So you have a definitely an intelligence um, element, and. Uh, You also mentioned Sanders, the family, often in the book. What were your thoughts about uh, Sanders' book?
1: Well, I mean, I appreciated that Sanders' book because, you know, his book actually was published before Berliozzi's. And he did, you know, he went to the spawn Ranch. He, in 19, not before the murders, but right after the family was identified. He got interviews with family members. He did a lot of hard gumshoe detective work. He insinuated himself with Gunther and Whiteley, got access to their records. The problem with the family is, um, you know, one of the biggest complaints about my book is I don't draw specific conclusions. I just put out the evidence that I found, and I try as hard as I can not to speculate. I let the readers reach their own conclusions. I'm only showing what differs from the official account and what's new, Sanders did similar, except then he made these leaps and reported what he thought were conclusions, but without any substantiation. So his book is kind of a good starting point for something like mine, but you have to be so careful because he doesn't really differentiate between what's speculation in his book and what is fact-based. And unfortunately, he goes out in a couple wild areas, as do I, but I'm always, you know, pointing out that this isn't proven, but this isn't a report or something like that, where he'll just throw stuff against the wall. If it sticks, it stays.
0: Gotcha. And you have, I mean, you came across the CIA and Intel is a theme that comes through this book. I mean, it's a proper, uh, you know, subtitle to your book because you come across these guys who are probably CIA assets putting out fake stories. You talk about uh, Haight-Ashbury. I mean, the chapter 11 on Mind Control... I read that like just in like a state of semi-shock and unbelievable information, but we are at 42 minutes. Uh, Is there anything that you would like to emphasize or anything that I missed?
1: Oh no! I'm very happy with how much you covered. I mean, obviously we could go on for two hours, At least. But you give a good, you give a great nutshell uh, synopsis of everything. I appreciate that. What you're talking about, Chapter Eleven and MK Ultra, Jolly West, Jack Ruby—that was almost another book, and that was another reason the book was so difficult to write to try to merge those two stories. But hopefully, Chapter Eleven. I actually wanted at least three chapters instead of one there, but I think we got it in enough just to show the readers how compelling the case to be made, that there was some CIA involvement and manipulation of Manson um, uh, in 1969. Uh, But yeah, I think you covered the most important points here in the podcast.
0: Yeah, the fact that you uncovered the fact that Jolly and West is in contact with Gottlieb was just a shocker. And that's just another credit to you, and your research going you. through and yeah, it's going through and actually sifting through the boxes, you know, and bringing this stuff to light. That was so, not
1: pleasant. There's nothing worse <laughs> than being in an archive in the summer for three straight months looking for a needle in the haystack, but it paid off in the end.
0: Yeah, awesome. So, people, you got to read this book. It's an incredible amount of research, and over time, really I think you you <laughs> capture. You're able to look back at this uh, and really give it uh, context, and not let this one narrative kind of. Uh, dominate the, the whole story because there's a lot more to this story the title of the book oh, again, William,
1: can i yeah, can i just say please, one thing first? please do i also
0: have two oh, i'm sorry please do Go yeah on. i have two
1: websites and they have a lot of the documents that you and i have discussed plus some that you know obviously we can't reprint in the book because there's not enough pages so instagram is called chaos the book and facebook is just the title of the book Uh, or just google my name and manson and you'll be able to see the scanned documents letters between gottlieb and west and the last the sheriff's intelligence uh intelligence files on manson stuff that's not available any place and
0: on instagram is it chaos the book all one word yeah okay so it's chaos the book facebook chaos what about your other social media how can people get in in touch in touch with you
1: I have Twitter too. I think that's called Cast the Book. But if you find just one of those three Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, they're all kind of the same thing. Okay. But I've been told there are different audiences for different sites. So I'm just making everything available on each of those. Awesome.
0: And again, your last name is spelled O N E I double L, correct?
1: It sure is. Not yeah. to oh, be... I do have a website. Okay. I guess. I've got a personal website, tomoneal.org.
0: Tomoneal.org. Gotcha. And the title of the book, again, is Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, just published June 25th, 2019. Excellent job. I commend you for writing the book. Great work.
1: Thank you very much, William. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Thank you. Have a great day. All
1: right. right. Bye bye. You too. Bye-bye.